why it isn't linear. Why the journey isn't linear. With the subtitle of Falling Upward. Lady Julian of Norwich, who was an English anchoress and an important Christian mystic and theologian, thought to be the first woman to ever write a book that then copies were made of, said, first, first there is the fall and then there's the recovery. Both of them are the mercy of God. There's a Catholic theologian, his name is um, Richard Rohr, who has written extensively about this idea of falling upward. Let me give you a couple of thoughts from his writings this morning as we lay the foundation for the theme and what I'd like to say to you. Brother Rohr separates life into two halves. The first half is that half where we spend building success. We're consumed with our security and our containment and looking good to others. It's what's important and that's all-consuming, building that first half of life. That's what we major on. We tend to put life into containers. So we want to look good, we need a home, we have to have a good job, we need a certain number of friends, and all of these things are very important. The car we drive, and again, how we dress, how we look to others, their impression of us, these are the containers. And uh, those who look at these things from a therapy standpoint talk about these containers being neuro-grooves. I don't know how many of you ever had the old-style album that turned records and albums that turned on a turntable and you set a needle down in the groove of the record and it would play the sound. <laughs> that I would have to explain that just blows my mind, but I realize we have people sitting here this morning that don't even know what a cassette tape is, much, much less a phonograph. But we take in the first half of our life, which is generally up into our 40s, this approach to life that becomes sort of a neurological groove. And if we don't do something to break out of that, then we can go into our 50s and even into our 60s and, and, and really never come out of these grooves of thinking that life is made up of these containers of how much we have and what's in our bank account and what people think of us and what kind of car we drive and building security, building a life for ourselves. Now, it's the second half of life, and if you're on time, typically you begin to really question that first half and open yourself up to the idea of a second half of life 
in your 50s and 60s. That's contemplative, it's formative, it's inclusive. You're able to accept the paradox of life and forgive yourself and others. You focus far more on the beatitudes of Jesus than the commands of Jesus. And so instead of everything becoming about either or, it becomes about and, and it's inclusive. And so life loses some of these containers that we're so consumed with, and we relax. And we start talking about content rather than containers. And instead of the first half of life, which is survival, we start talking about the sacred dance of just enjoying God. We learn also in this second half of life that it's actually our stumblings through life. Richard Rohr calls these our necessary sufferings that present us the opportunity to transition between the first and the half part of life. I'm compelled by the story of Joseph, who certainly dealt with these halves, the first and the second half. Certainly in the first half, he spent his life building these containers, seeking his father's approval. It was important what he wore, and thus his father gave him a coat of many colors. It was important that he pleased all of his family members, and thus he would help them with their various chores. It was especially important to him that he help build the security of the family, and so he was given to being a good shepherd and to caring for the sheep. He was uh, agricultural, and he was in farming, and he built this life, he built this stability, he built this acceptance, he built... And then one day, God entered into all of that and began to break that up because he gave Joseph dreams. How many of you remember that God came and gave little Joseph some dreams that he then, thinking he had all of these containers neatly in place of security and people loved him and people thought the best of him and all of this, even especially with his family members, that he'd be safe in sharing these dreams. And when he did, of course, he garnered the absolute hatred of his family. It's interesting how that Joseph's life then becomes a progression from pasture to pit, Potiphar's palace to prison, and from prison to Pharaoh's palace where he ultimately is put in charge of everything. Think about it with me for just a minute. From pasture where he was farming and caring for sheep and planting crops and being a good boy, being a good son, loving his father, caring for his family members, building security and structure. He went from that to being absolutely hated by every one of his family members except his father. And then he was sold. Literally, he was sold to a band of gypsies that were making their way through the countryside. He wound up in a place in Egypt 
where he began to serve. And again, having a life, knowing this life of servitude and faithfulness and so forth, he again built a reputation. And pretty soon he was entrusted to be over Potiphar's palace. You'll remember. And all of a sudden, he's seduced by Potiphar's own wife, falsely accused, and then imprisoned. And all of a sudden, life's failings, life's fallings, slam him back down to the ground. So he starts as a favored son, and he's slammed to the ground and sold like a slave. He comes back from that failing and that falling, and he rises, and he's got security again and prosperity, and another falling comes, and he's slammed back to the ground again. He's thrown into prison at this point, and once again, he begins to have favor and show himself faithful, and he interprets the dreams of a couple of the prisoners and says, remember me when you get out of here. It was the Potiphar's, actually, Potiphar's butler and cook. Remember me when you get out of here. Put, put in a good word into when you, when you get out of here and you go before Pharaoh. Well, they forget him. And he's left in prison. But then Pharaoh himself has a dream and none of his main men, none of his guards, none of his wise men, his soothsayers, can interpret this dream. And all of a sudden, I forget whether it was the butler or the cook, one of them remembers, oh, we remember there was, there was a guy in jail who interpreted our dreams and they came to pass. I wonder if you might call on him. And Pharaoh says, bring him out right now. Get a hold of him. And little Joseph comes before Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of all of Egypt, and interprets Pharaoh's dreams accurately. And it happens, of course, just like Joseph says. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he raises him up to be second only to himself, puts him over the entire land of Egypt. He's in complete control of it all. So finally he reaches the place of privilege and authority which enables Joseph not to save not only the land of Egypt but all of his family later when they're going through the seven years of famine that he had seen in Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh, Jacob's life is an enigma. Joseph's, Joseph, excuse me, is an enigma. It's, a, it's an interesting concept of this first and second half and it's an interesting look at this principle that life has fallings and failures and difficulties that if you try to escape them if you don't understand them if you reject them all you will bring ten times as much upon yourself than if you accepted them and built them into your paradigm of life and realize that actually your fallings, though they do not define your future, they become the crucible that allows you to transition from the first half of life into the second half of life. 
You see, it's your marriage that might be the crucible. And having never understood it, if you're willing to accept it as that, you might find that God begins to lead you into a whole new profound wisdom and joy and sense of assurance of his love. It might be a job that you're at that right now in this first half of life you can't imagine yourself staying at. A career that so totally upsets you and is beneath you and you've prayed, God deliver me from it. Out of that first half of life type of thing. I ought to be a success. I'm better than this. I deserve more than this. This, is, this doesn't fit into my containers. I wonder if maybe that job, that career, that skill set is something that God's going to use as a crucible to transition you out of where you've been in that place of immaturity where you've got to be in control and life fits into containers and now God wants you to come out and blossom into this second half of life where it stops being about you and it starts becoming all about him. I looked up the word crucible because thinking I knew what it meant, I wanted to be sure before I told you what it meant that I did know. Well, you'll recognize it, of course, in the Catholic tradition as an actual vessel upon which or in which they process and deal with the sacraments, the blood of Christ representing the death and the falling of Christ, the death of Christ. But it's more than that. It can also be a severe test. So, for instance, he's ready to face the crucible of the Olympics. It can also be a place or situation in which, which concentrated forces interact to cause or influence change or development. For instance, conditioned by having grown up with the crucible of Chinatown, his life took this course. Or his character was formed by the crucible of war. I wonder this morning if you're facing a crucible. Maybe again, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's a, a, a skill set, a, a career that you have been in but you've prayed to get out. Maybe it's your church. Or your pastor. It could be your pastor. And Lord knows that your pastor, if I'm to be honest, grew up through my 20s and 30s and even well into my 40s and I still wrestle with it now in my 50s, thought that life belonged in neat little containers that I could control and that if I would confess the word enough, if I would believe God deep enough, if I would just get the right mix of the right clothing and the right 
sound from the worship leader and, and enough volume. And, and I, if, I'd, if I'd watched the best who are really charismatic at delivering the word of God, and I would do it like that, if I, if I could get a hold of this thing called church growth and, and, and do it by the numbers and fit it into the containers, our church would number in the hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And I don't mind telling you now as I am approaching my 60s that I'm, that I, Jeff Corson, man of faith and power, <laughs> am coming to grips with crucibles in my life that have me really questioning and having to stop and get before the Father and say, God, is it about all these things? Do I need a different set of music? Do I need different clothes? Do, does it need to be louder? Do I need to preach brighter? Or, or, God, do I just need you? Is it about being more reflective and contemplative and productive and simply satisfied and sitting in to what God has created for me? Or it is, about, is it about me trying to change it and build this security and this containment and looking good for others? And how, Am I making sense to anybody this morning? You see, it's this idea of falling upward. And actually, now that I'm confronted with it, especially at this age and time of life, I'm realizing it's through all of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, falling upward, that the entire gospel actually is pinned in every book in some way, that life is about death and resurrection and that that is cyclical and that that is about putting my trust in God for the resurrection and allowing allowing death allowing the crucible of death of failing of falling of sinning even to bring me to that place of utter brokenness where I'm absolutely dependent upon the Lord. There's a short little scripture kind of tucked away, buried into the back rooms of the Psalms. Just two scriptures in this short passage in Psalm 105 about the life of Joseph. Would you go there? They're going to have it on the screen behind me because I'm reading it from the NET translation. Let's go. Verse 18. The shackles hurt his feet. Now, if you read the context of it, it it's definitely talking about Joseph, so I'm, I'm not going to try to, to prove that or exegete that. The shackles hurt his feet. His neck was placed in an iron collar. Until the time when his prediction came true, the Lord's word proved him right. How could such a young, strapping, intelligent, he was said to be good-looking, beautiful, 
more handsome than, than the others. A good runner, great with the sheep. I, I mean, so treasured, so privileged, so well thought of, so loved in a superior way compared to the rest of his brothers that his father made him a coat of many colors. How could that man wind up in a place where his feet were shackled? Perhaps you're asking that this morning. How, when I started out with such promise, does my life now wind up in a place where I feel so shackled? How do I find myself, after beginning so well, knowing that I just knew where everything fit and, and I knew how to speak the word and I, I, I knew how to pray the prayer of faith and I knew how to deal with this situation. Do I find myself with my neck in an iron collar so there's times now where I can't even speak. I, I can't articulate anymore. People will ask me, what is God doing? Are you blessed? Are you happy? And, and there's a lump in my throat as I try to Fake it and tell them, yeah, man, God's doing so. It's all so awesome. And, and that lump actually is there to remind me, you liar. <laughs> you liar. But you're unwilling to share that actually what you're wrestling with right now is the crucible that God brought into your life. And that how we deal with that crucible has everything to do with transitioning into our resurrection. That's where Joseph was. Until, there's our hope, a small word, until. It always transitions. God never leaves us in our crucible. He always, it's the cycle of life. He, he planned it, he programmed it into both testaments and to everybody's life. God has always got your resurrection in view. Looking at verse 18 from Rotherham's translation, I was just, I was floored. I thought, oh my God, this is like talking to John Master Giovanni, Jesus. This is like having John Master Giovanni right here and asking him about this scripture. And here it was in Rotherham's. Verse 18, listen. They forced, comma, into a fetter his foot. Into the iron entered his soul. It's never about all the external things that are going on. Don't wrestle with that. That's why Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Don't, don't wrestle with what you can see. There's something about that crucible right now in your life that God's wanting to divinely use. And dear ones, it's in the soul. I know who I am theologically. I know I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. How about you? You know, I'm a, I'm a faith preacher. I'm an identity preacher. I'm a resurrection, 
reconciliation, reconciled to God, bless the Lord, faith, preacher. I believe in healing. I believe in prosperity. I believe God's will for us is to live a joy-filled life. (laughs) And then God says, yeah, but like gravity, I I put certain laws into the universe. I, I put certain laws into this planet. I put certain laws into your life, son, and you are not able to run from them and pretend like they don't exist. And one of them is the cycle of death and resurrection. Failing only to fall upward. Falling upward. Think of it. Israel. Jacob called Israel. Wasn't he the man that struggled with God? I mean, so much of our faith is based on these old patriarchs and their their relationship with God and how faithful they were and what great people of faith they were. And wasn't it Israel that struggled with God? And what happened in that wrestling? The Lord touched him in his hip and, or his thigh and the rest of his life he limped. That was his crucible. Can't run from your limp. <laughs> and he won. The Bible says he wrestled with God and he won. But he limped. Isn't it supposed to be easy, Lord? I I thought when I accepted Jesus as my Savior, life was on an upward tear. Woo, glory. Everything was going to be glorious from now on. How about you? And actually, it's the loss that brings us renewal. You never have Life until you have death. You never have renewal until you have death. You never have a resurrection until something goes into the ground and dies. And that's why Jesus himself said, a seed that remains alone never brings forth life. If it abides alone, it just dies. It's just out there, meaningless. But if it goes into the ground, if it's actually buried in the crucible of dirt, It will rise again. And it will bring life to many out of its resurrection. Without struggle, you largely remain on cruise control throughout life. See, it's the cyclical pattern that we need to welcome. Now, here's verse 19. Again, from the NET Bible. But then if you'll click, if you happen to have that translation or if you, since it's an internet Bible, you don't buy it in the store, you can look in there and, and it will have little reference, numbered references where you click on it and it'll bring up a, a sub-menu. Watch this, verse 19. The Lord's word proved him right, but the literal rendering is the Lord's word refined him. 
Dear ones, it's not about being right. It's about having union with God. Have you ever found that before the truth will set you free, it'll make you miserable? (laughs) Every Bible character experienced difficulty and went through this cycle of dying and losing and falling before they experienced breakthrough and promise. What's your your crucible? Is it your career? Is it your marriage? Is it some spiritual pursuit and calling that you've never quite fully realized? Is it a friend that you're bonded to and you know you're not supposed to just kill that relationship? You struggle with it. Is it a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Is it your own relationship with God? See, God isn't just your start and finish. He's your beginning and end. He's your alpha and omega. I got to thinking about this in terms of that the journey isn't linear. And the Lord spoke to me and said, I'm not just interested in your bottom line. I'm interested in your circle of life. I used to think it was about getting somewhere, about my destiny. And he said, no, this thing's going to go on for eternity. What I'm doing in you right now will affect your relationship for all eternity in the circle of life with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's preparing you to sit with the very Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity and enjoy what it's like just to live like God. Doesn't that put a few things on this earth in perspective? (laughs) Life isn't about where you've stopped, and it's certainly not about where you have to start again. It's not about where you fall off. It's about your continual friendship with God in which he never leaves you. That's why the Christian journey isn't linear, because God is a circle of life. The reason the Christian journey isn't linear is because we often, because of crucibles and failures and sins and fallings, we divert, we, we get off of the path. We, we have, it's like a mountain stream that meanders. You'll, you'll never find a, a mountain stream that's just straight downhill. Starts up here and goes straight downhill so you can build everything around it in nice, neat little containers because you know where the stream's going to run. Mountain streams don't run that way. Mountain streams run and they, they, they meander and they go over here and then you have to look for them through the bushes and it shows up over here. Such has been my Christian life. How about yours? And do you know, God doesn't let you go when you meander and then wait for you to come back. And then when you come back to the linear line, say, welcome back. Glad you got your life together. That's what I used to think. If I sin, if I blow it, then God in his mercy will let me go and I'll meander and I'll mess up my life for years and he just waits for me to come back and get on that straight and narrow path. Then his love and expression of acceptance returns and I feel good and I'm without shame now. And the truth is God never left. God went with me into the bushes. God left with me on the moran- in the, my me- me- meanderings. <laughs> Whatever it is I did, he was there. 
He never left. It's not linear. I'm falling upward because that's what life is. There has to be death before there's resurrection. Joseph fell upward when he went from the prison to the palace. The apostle Paul went from being knocked off his horse to being seated in heavenly places. John Mark went from being refused to being called alongside the apostles. David went from being his friend's adulterer and murderer to becoming the friend of God. Life's stumblings form the crucible for transition from the first half of life to the second half of life. And you know where all of this winds up? Not back where I get back in control and I can set it back up and I have all my nice neat containers now and Lord, I'm sure glad you brought me through that because now I have a handle on that and I won't go back there. Well, honey, <laughs> it will just be something different or of a different... Le- you, it's about falling upward. So we have to learn to flow. But here's where God ultimately wants to bring us. Number one, in just knowing him. My prayer this week has been, Lord, I don't need louder music. I just want to know you. Lord, I don't, I, I, I don't need better clothes that people would like better, that, that kind of preacher look, that, that, that boy, these people with these mega churches, you know, they just dress a certain way. They look young and virile and handsome and strong. And thing is, they work out and they're slender and they've got a six-pack, you know. <laughs> I'm dealing with that crucible. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to accept maybe I'll never have a six-pack in life, Jesus. But I've decided, you know, it's not about that. It's not about pithy statements. It, 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 it's not about a, a, trophy, a trophy wife. It's not about, you know, all these things that people make life about. It's about you, God. I just want you. And then I read the words of Paul in Acts when he was standing before the judgment, not seat of Christ, I mean before literally a court. Listen to his words. This was Paul who got knocked off the horse when he thought he had life together. He was pursuing his call, knocked off the horse, and he met God. And some years later, after sitting in many jail cells, now he's before the court for final sentencing. And he says this, My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Dear ones, we are called to transmute the darkness into light. We're called to transmute sin into grace and mercy. And I know this, as long as I'm so consumed with me and my world and my containers, if I don't allow the crucibles of life to transition me into that second half 
where I rest and I, and I desire him more than anything else. And I desire the reality of Acts 20 more than anything else. I'll never enter that place that Christ wants me to be of transmuting sin into the grace and mercy of God for everybody that I meet. 